You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to complicated family secrets? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with the author, of the Savage Kind, John Copenhaver joins us for the first segment. And after the break, singer-songwriter Rory Kelly stops by. Well, John, like I said off the top, you got great kudos from Megan Abbott, who's a terrific writer herself. And I think she basically said, the Savage Kind tantalizes from the first pages, and I concur. Now, in the past, one of your stablemates from Pegasus Books, and you have the same publicist, Heather Martin was on the podcast. And the reason why I mention her is because for my own edification and for listeners who are going to be picking out the book, I think it's really important to understand where the writer is coming from and their personal journey. And it gives me a lot of insights to the books that I'm reading. So before we jump into the, into the book, The Savage Kind, let's share some moments talking about your own personal journey that brought you here today with us. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on back from when I was very young, started writing stories that, um, you you know, I I didn't even know what I was really doing. I was actually in a lot of cases drawing the stories because I am mildly dyslexic. And so it, you know, I didn't even think in terms of, uh, of writing, I thought I'm sort of of telling stories and that transferred in my adolescence into actually filming, making my friends, and getting them together to film stories. Right. And um, I think that it wasn't until high school and I became more of a reader that I started figuring out that I would love the flexibility with writing stories down. And, um, and it became a passion in high school. And it really, all the way through college, um, I took every single creative writing course I could get my hands on and uh, ended up uh, in an MFA program where I studied t- to uh, write. And, I, and keep in mind, this point, I wasn't thinking, although I'd always been a fan of mystery fiction, right. I, I was not thinking in terms of mystery fiction, especially in my MFA program. I was really thinking in terms of just literary, you know, uh, literary character-based fiction. Um, but then kind of got that on my blood a little bit, went back to the, my core love, which was mystery fiction and have kind of stayed there since, um, took me about 10 years to write, find an agent and sell dodging and burning. Um, and once I did that, I think I kind of, you know, I, I mean, I knew this is the, at least for the near future, the genre for me, <laughs> So in various stages preparing for this interview, three movies came to mind. Mm-hmm. Compulsion, Dead Poet uh, Society, and, yeah. and ironically, Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. So I'm oh. thinking because it's about family secrets. It's yes. about exploring a crime in a sense with a private mm-hmm. investigator. Mm-hmm. When you sit down, is there a movie in your head when you start to write The Savage Kind? That's a great question. And the answer is yes, actually many movies. I'm a huge film buff and I, in fact, teach some film courses. Um, 
So film is it sort of deeply embedded in probably both my books, but certainly the savage kind. Um, I mean, initially, the great film noirs of the late 40s and early 50s are um, a clear reference there. I think with you know their noir sensibility, uh, a lot of the issues that they're tackling are kind of not really tackling, but commenting on, I guess, or serve as commentary on. Um, are embedded and maybe exposed, lifted to the surface a little more in um, the savage kind. So, you know, I'm thinking of like out of the past, right. uh, uh, Laura, I don't know. Um, I could, I could list many, many. Um, I love that you brought up that Chinatown. It's one of my all time favorite movies and it has a complicated plot. And I, I love the sort of rich, like complicated plots with uh, interesting sort of familial backstory. So, um, and that's a neo-noir, so it fits right in with, with um, what I'm doing in the book. Um, so I must ask you, in the summer of 2021 on TCM was that whole series, noir series, neo-noir series. <laughs> I, I DVR'd them all. I watched them all. It was amazing storytelling, which in your book, this is why I kind of mentioned, did you you have a move in your head? In your book, you touch upon a lot of the themes of what's going on in those great noir old-time movies. I got to mention, I've done a lot of these, and I've read a lot of prologues in a -hmm. lot of books. Mm -hmm. Your prologue was one of the most interesting that I've ever read. You set everything up, and in a sense— with that prologue, are you manipulating the readers, which is an yeah. interesting game? Yeah. Yeah. So this is my little response to um, the whole Gone Girl phenomenon, which um, I actually really love that book. I know people feel differently about it, but um, I am a fan. But, um, you know, I don't want to spoil it for folks, but... The idea that the idea of an unreliable narrator, you know, right. that we right. find out at some point that we've been lied to a great deal by one of the primary narrators really interests me. But I thought it'd be interesting. What if the narrator essentially stepped forward and said, hey, I'm lying to you um, almost as a challenge. Um, and so that's where my the idea for my first line came from. And the prologue that serves as sort of a framework for the novel is this idea that you're you are, hey, you've been warned, you're being manipulated. Um, so, you know, I, you know, you fair warning, essentially. <laughs> um, and I had a lot of fun with that. Honestly, it was some of the, the most fun I had writing or writing the, the, the sections that come from this mysterious narrator um, that begins with the prologue. Sets of characters and their relationships, intimate relationships, fascinate me. And I'm a big fan of James Lee Burke. Yeah, he, he's, the, yes. he's been called the Faulkner of crime fiction. He writes beautiful, beautiful scenes in books, and he's still doing it exceedingly well. But I'm, I always think about Cleet Purcell and Dave Robichaux. They have both good and bad into them, no matter what the ultimate aim is in terms of the narrative of the story. Talk about mm-hmm. the two characters that you put together in, as a set, in a sense, and that is Judy and Philippa. Yeah, so... Um, I really wanted to play with uh, some stereotypes, this sort of classic um, good girl, bad girl dynamic that comes up actually in a lot of film noir. Um, 
and then complicate it. And so in both cases, I have these teenage girls going on to being young women. Um, one, uh, Philippa really reads very much uh, the classic teenager from the like, 1948 time period. Right. And, um, you know, I think people would see her and think, you know, she's straight from, you know, th- this time period, the bows and the hair and the saddle oxfords and, and et cetera. So, and then Judy is, you know, is, is starkly contrasted. Um, she's got like, this severe black bob. She um, does not make friends easily. Uh, in fact, makes a point of pushing people away from her. And, um, and, and this, it's, it's certainly by her environment thought of as the bad girl. Um, even this, this rumor that she kills cats for fun, you know, um, she's just so terrible, but these two girls find each other because they're both lonely and isolated and actually have a lot in common ultimately. Um, but they also don't, they don't sort of obey the, 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 the black hat, white hat kind of uh, um, duality. Um, in fact, there's a lot of gray area in both of them. And so that was really fun to sort of continue to pull and deepen the, the shades of both those characters. And um, I think that's essentially what, you know, a writer needs to do is to, you know, we're making or trying to make complete or complex characters. Maybe they're not always complete, but they're complex and so I really wanted to keep them complex. Um, that that was fun for me. And uh, there are a lot of sort of moral questions that I think the, the book is pushing at and playing with. Um, but I think that their journey particularly was really important to me. Uh, my guest is John Copenhaver. The book is called The Savage Kind. Now, in noir stories, I'm thinking of the great movie Mona Lisa, that terrific mm-hmm. movie, that is, there's always what's called the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. In this story, and this is probably a reach on my part, is there a male version of femme fatales? I'm thinking of a son and a father, because when they show up in the course of your narrative, mm-hmm. things happen, which is usually mm-hmm. tied to, to traditional uh, clinical, in a sense, femme fatales. Can we play with that a little bit? Is, can there be a male version of the femme fatales? Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there, I think whenever you have a character who is both manipulative and an object of desire at the same time, they're, they can fit that, that dynamic. Now it's going to play very differently for men than it will for women, especially given a time period. Now, a contemporary, you can get closer to the mark, I think, in in terms of a similar sort of experience. But back then, it would have read very differently, I think. Um, the way that manipulation would have worked certainly uh, does, you know, I think that's part of the, the femme fatale um, sort of uh, quality, that they're both attractive, but somehow like a siren going to lead you to disaster. <clears throat> And now you could do a, you could do an LGBTQ, like a, a gay femme fatale that might in that time period, right. set it back right. in time period. And that, that certainly could have a similar kind of feel to it. But if it's like a more heteronormative situation, then it would, I think it would feel different. I think that um, mainly because the way we've coded desirability, um, particularly back then is, is different. Um and so the way it would read on like a, in the book or a screen would be um, 
it would it would feel more like uh, maybe the protector that then ends up being the the violator or something like that, you know, um, and not as much about overt sex appeal. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but so this is where I appreciate what you do in terms of writing a book that is fascinating, but for me, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. I always want to learn something I don't know, and I learned sure. a lot in this book. What role does poetry and mythology play? I'm thinking of Keats, and I don't want to give anything, no spoiler alerts, but you did this beautifully, Ode to a Nightingale. You want to amplify on that? Yeah, so I, okay, so this is the English teacher, I mean, coming out. Uh, You know, so much of the book is about a romance with literature. Uh, These young girls are enamored with their seductive in a sense seductive teacher at least she's sort of seducing them with language and and, and I, in a sense she's also sort of a symbol to them of what they might be but um but the thing that i kept on coming back to and the reason why i have a lot of these romantic poets i reference Wuthering heights a lot um the gothic literature is kind of has a thread actually through some of or like romantic literature with a capital R kind of works its way all the way through um, the book is because I think that that captures like that, that high emotion, that high teenage emotion um, that you see in like the poetry of Keats or you see in Wuthering Heights where everything's bigger and, and bolder and more intense because you're a teenager and I teach teenagers so I can have some, <laughs> have some insight into, right. into right. that experience. And so um, I, I want I wanted the literature to match that that feeling. Um, and so and I mean I will undeniably it's connected to my own interest as well. But I think it has to be there for the characters. Now the mythological stuff is is also I mean also connected to the romantic stuff. But it's it's this um, it essentially creates a framework for the the narrative um i and the weird thing is i i would love to tell everyone exactly what the framework for the narrative was it it is a it is a greek myth that gets referenced in the epigraph if you're willing to look it up right Uh, it will tell you a lot about what's going on in the story though so i don't want to like make it up after you're finished (laughs) so what else is going on in the story and this terms of the art and craft of storytelling is what i call foreshadowing and you can define that because i think you probably understand it better than i do but there's a scene in the book where the two girls are together and they're by the Emancipation Memorial, where President Lincoln has his hand over a kneeling slave. And what's so illuminating about mm-hmm. what you do, because we don't know where you're going with this until you, yeah. until you finish the book. Judy's reaction, Judy Peabody's reaction is she feels like she's being shackled watching this. And that is mm-hmm. almost, like a, almost like a Rosetta Stone for me as a reader. You're giving mm-hmm. us something, but we don't know what it is yet. But it is so important to understanding this particular character and what happens during the course of your storytelling. Yeah, I think that um, that I mean, this is based on a real statue, too, by the way. I, I live in D.C. and I walk past it many times and it always struck me as a way a, a statue open to interpretation, what it's trying to communicate um, about slavery and about uh, Lincoln and all that. Um, I think, you know, what I'm doing with the story is having a young lady look at it. And as we often do is project our own story onto things. Um, 
And I think that she sees, you know, she feels shackled by her situation, um, which is that she has been adopted by a family who's using her as a replacement child. Essentially, they lost their child horribly. Um, uh, she was murdered and she essentially, essentially adopted a child to kind of replace and Judy is supposed to be a replacement for Jackie. And that's just such a bizarre and confining and uh, in some ways really awful thing um, that, uh, that she sees herself kind of shackled this way. And she's always like, I'm, you know, I'm not free. Um, although there's sort of a pretense of freedom there. And, um, I think I play with that constantly and they come back to the statue. Both girls come back and start, start seeing it differently as the story moves along, but it, it's a symbol that constantly changes and gains momentum. Um, and, and, and it, I refer to it in the last line of the book. So <laughs> we all, you also deal with what I referred to early on with, you know, the Nicholson movie, Chinatown family mm-hmm. secrets. You have two families, the Kloss family and the Peabody family. And it's all entwined, intertwined in terms mm-hmm. of secrets and how it affects both of the girls. And you, what fascinates me is your pacing of the book. It's not mm-hmm. a Patterson book where boom, 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 you can read in a couple of hours. But the pacing kept me going because I read differently when I, for work, when I do interviews and I read for pleasure. So I, I stop a lot and take notes and hopefully come up with some insights that work for, for the, the listener and also you as the, as the writer. And then the pacing increases dramatically towards the end. So I think you, ha- you had a whole structure in mind, but I really admire the pacing of your particular book. Uh, thank you. Actually, that's it's hard. <laughs> I think it's a harder thing to do. I, I mean, I know that I constantly keep it in mind as a writer. Um, to what degree uh, am I needing to work in backstory um, and uh, but without slowing the narrative too much? Working character de- de- growth and development without slowing the story too much. Um, and the idea, I think, for me is that a slow build often means uh, a slow but steady build often creates a very satisfying ending. Um, at least as a reader, I appreciate that. Right. I've really got to know the characters, but there's been enough story to keep me, you know, you know, interested. And and then it kind of all kind of comes crashing together. Um, I, I don't really like books that, um, I've heard described as pacey, which I think they mean a little bit like every page is an explosion. Right. And that, some readers do like that a lot and that's fine. I just per- personally, I don't really like that. Um, I like a more of a slow, gradual, like build to, um, a dramatic, uh, reveal or series of, of events. There's a person mentioned this book just twice and I have a tangential connection to him and his name is Alger Hiss because I, yeah. sa- I sat down with Tony Hiss for an interview he wrote the book called The View from Alger's Window and, and also not mentioned in the book but kind of alluded to the coming storm is going to be the Red Scare right the McCarthy era and right. I also sat down with Walter Bernstein who was a blacklisted writer a very famous blacklisted writer I believe he worked on You Are There and he also wrote a memoir called Inside Out. So all of a sudden, these references that I have and connections going pretty far back are propping up in your book. And now one thing that I take away from Tony Hiss is feeling Alger Hiss was his father, good, bad, or indifferent. 
That was his father. And I think, especially Judy Peabody, has to ultimately wrestle with this. Who are my parents? Mm-hmm. And I leave that open-ended because that unfolds. But that's something she's constantly wrestling with, her in a sense, her own self-identity. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think in an interesting way, both my books are about the slow unraveling or unfolding of our self-knowledge. In both books, characters go on a journey. They might be solving a mystery, but you realize they're going on a journey to uncover who they are. Um, And sometimes that means coming to terms with something that they are. Sometimes it means actually finding out like who their parents actually are um, what that means for them moving forward, uh, how that defines or doesn't define them in some cases. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, that idea of sort of figuring out your parentage, um, is, is kind of certainly plays a big role in in savage kind. We're going to bring bring a listener in shortly who has read your book, is a voracious reader, and she's starting her own journey as as a novelist. I want her to talk to you, too. Maybe you guys can get together and give her some tips, and she can raise some questions. But there's one of the characters so central to this book that we learn a lot of things as the story unfolds that are kind of very surprising. And that is their high school teacher, we'll call at this point Miss Martins. And she says to both the girls, I'm quoting— so I get this wrong, please correct me. Friendship is like a prayer to the gods. Where does that come from? Uh, so I think that is a I think that she says the reason she says that and its sort of meaning are complicated. Um, I think she says it almost as a form of manipulation. Right. Um, now, remember, we don't always manipulate people for ill, right? Sometimes we, we, we manipulate people because you are looking out and think, trying to see what's best for them. Um, and I also think that she's referencing, like, there's a lot of conversation between she and the girls about <clears throat> the gods, as in, like, the Greek gods, as in the sort of, um, this, these sort of symbols of uh, civilization, symbols of art, these th- things that she kind of likes to wrap them in, in, in this semi-fantasy world that she, you know, actually indulges them a bit. She's, it's, it's very clear that she has favorite students, let's put it this way. Right. Um, very, very much the Miss Jean Brody kind of uh, fashion. And I think it's also kind of a way of, you know, cueing that as well. I would have to honestly look at, at a context. I'm, I'm trying to remember the moment that she says it, um, but I think that, um, I think she says it to Judy on the park bench, if I'm remembering correctly. But I think that that's sort of what she's trying to do is bring like, okay, bring the two girls together, make sure that they stay friends because that's an important thing for her. Well, no spoiler alert, but later on we'll find out that she has an agenda too about these two girls, which is fascin- a fascinating story. And I can go on and on, but Rory Vesey's reading right now. Uh, she's read your book. She's a very intuitive reader, and she's starting on her own journey of working on a, a book. So I want to ask her to come and join the conversation. Hopefully you guys can put your minds together, and I'm going to sit back and listen because I think the whole writing process fascinates me from the initial idea – the time the book is in the bookstore or online, it is it is a true journey. So, Rory, do you have any questions for John? 
Yes. And my question came up almost as I started your book immediately, because it's something I'm struggling with. What made you decide to narrate the book in the first person for each of the characters when it is obviously you're, you're a man, you're not a kid anymore, and it seems like you chose the most difficult way to tell the story, but yet you did it so well as having been a girl in school myself. Um, but yet I would think for you, this would be the most difficult way. And yet you, how did you come to that decision? So it was a long journey, actually. <laughs> I um, initially wrote a version of the novel. It's gone through many versions, but I wrote a version of the novel close third to Philippa only. So I then, after sort of going through edits with my agent, she felt that I wasn't getting close enough to the characters. And I thought that the solution was um, to, to write them in the first. I said that I, I, I would embody them actually much more convincingly if I really just wrote and, and, and imagined their voice. The other thing that I wanted to do in doing that as well is to then embody um, Judy and Judy's voice. And um, I immediately, once I got into that perspective, felt much closer to the characters. I think they really started to pop um, also made the, at that point made the, the choice to make it dual sort of dueling journal entries. So they had this immediacy to them because the girls are kind of throwing down their thoughts every few days in these journals about what's happening. Um, and so I, in an interesting way, maybe it was that that was the trick to getting closer to them um, instead of that distance that sometimes third can give you, um, you know, I think for you know, every writer is going to be a little different but I, certainly for me, it was a long journey. It was a lot of re- rewriting, but I was, I was really happy, particularly to embody Judy's uh, point of view. I think that um, in something that I, um, I, in some ways, was trying to keep her mysterious, but I felt like uh, ultimately bringing her closer still preserved some of her mystery. Um, uh, so I don't know. I, I Ultimately, it felt like the right decision once I actually st- sat down and started doing it. But it, it was not the easiest thing to, you know, decide. <laughs> right, right. So when when you were developing, like, starting at the very beginning with Judy's character, especially, were you conscious of, of building some empathy for her? I mean, because, you know, you start out that she's possibly this girl that's killing cats. Right. <laughs> was, that just, was that just a kind of unfold as you get to know the character? I, I initially, I think I really wanted us to be aligned with Philippa because she was the familiar character to most readers. And Judy was the um, kind of more uh, unknown, mysterious um, and perhaps troubling character. And as the story evolves, I wanted us to go on a journey of growing closer to Judy and starting to question Philippa a little bit. Um, and that, that sort of goes back to this sort of desire to give a complexity. Um, and I think that, uh, that's where the girls end up being kind of similar in their complexities that they're, they're, they're different in a lot of ways, but their complexity is, is similar that sort of, I think both of them have experienced loss in their lives and they don't really know what to make of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think ultimately, like, I didn't want, 
I didn't want Judy to be too likable initially. Um, I really wanted her to be a little, a little off-putting, not so much that we were like so off-put we want to wouldn't want to read her, but uh, but you know, I want to have I wanted her to have edge, I guess is essentially what I wanted to do. Right. Because uh it, you know, initially as you're reading Judy, she comes across, okay, here's this really dark girl and and Philippa, you know, like when she told the story about hiding the necklace that her father gave to the stepmother. That was, you know, you can, you could totally understand that in, in the young girl doing that. Um, but, you know, Judy, you were much more leery of now, uh, especially, you know, when she took her up in the theater and all of that. So I was just, you know, wondering how much of your, do your characters ever surprise you as you're developing them? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, that's, that's the fun of it for me is that, um, I always discover something about my main characters that I didn't account on. Um, and that's true for both Philippa and Judy at different points in the process, but I definitely discovered things about them along the way. And, you know, even my sort of final kind of uh, turn of the screw at the end of the book was something that I discovered very late in the process. Um, and it just kind of came to me. I was like, Ooh, you know, and the same thing happened at dodging and burning. I had this moment where I realized, Oh, that's what's going on. And it's like my subconscious had been working on it all this time or something. Um, and so I, I think that's really, I think that's the fun. I mean, that's what essentially that's why I write. Um, and that's why, you know, although I outlined some, I never like, I try to be careful and not let that outline overly dictate the story. Um, I think there's got to be a careful uh, sort of relationship between understanding where the story is going and then forcing it to go away that it shouldn't go. John, we're just about out of time. So I'm going to challenge you because I know you're in the middle of your book tour. I think you're doing politics and prose if you haven't done it already, which is a great, great place to be. I I'm envious. I would love to be in that audience. So I'm always curious about, do you ever think about writing an article or writing a short story, uh, nonfiction, about after you're done with all these interviews and you've been in front of a lot of people, a lot of different perspectives, to kind of rate every time you've been interviewed? I think for my own edification, I would like to hear your response to what we just done did today. And Rory did a great job. I'm going to put her in my seat next time because she really asked some really, really good questions. But I would like to know as a writer what your thought process is in when you're all done with the promotions and you think back, well, this was good. This was okay. This could be better. Was I challenged? Was the interviewer good? I would love to get that kind of feedback from a writer like yourself. Yeah. Well, I, well, first of all, I love the questions. I love the questions that feel, uh, you know, first of all, that you've engaged with the book and have questions about the book and not just about my writing life. Um, I'm fine to talk about my writing life and, and that, and that those elements. And I think that's valid, valid questions, obviously, but I tell you what's fun for the author is when you feel like readers have read and digested and want to think about the book. It's a little tricky with a mystery, of course, because we can't necessarily talk about, right. you know, the, the ending. But uh, I love I, I'm a teacher, so I love talking about craft. So anytime you want to bring up a craft question, I'm, I'm there for it. I love thinking and, and chatting about and pro- trying to problem solve. So, um, yeah, I think those sorts of questions are very appealing to me. Well, I got to say, you gave us a lot to think about. The book is called The Savage Kind. 
And I'm looking forward to the next book and the next book because I believe you're planning on a trilogy. So that's going to be really interesting. Because my last question would have been before I ran out of time, you you left us with a lot more questions than answers at the back of the book. 1948, 1968, 1984. Uh, You playing with us a little bit, my friend, but look forward to next time we can have a conversation. I look forward to it, too. Thank you for having me on. All right. After the break, singer-songwriter. Rory Kelly stops by. I'm Larry Davidson. You're listening to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be back after the break. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
there's magic coming, oh, 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 there's magic coming, say magic has arrived in the studio for the podcast Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest Rory Kelly has been described as making Lady Beast music. So yes. I, I love that. So where does that come from, making Lady Beast music? Nobody's ever going to call me a podcast host as a beast. So I, <laughs> I love that. So let's just talk about you and Lady Beast music. Thank you for entering that way. You know, I started I started saying it. I started using it to describe myself because um, it's one of those terms that gets the people who you know will dig the music and turns away the people who you know won't dig it. <laughs> I did a little survey about what does the word Lady Beast mean to you? And, and the kind of people who love what I do all said like, oh, like powerful, you know, like a woman who is fierce and loud and not afraid to use her voice. And then there were like a couple sexist people who were like, oh, that sounds like some angry feminist who doesn't like any any man. And I was like, my music's not for you. It's okay that you don't like the term. <laughs> because, um, you know, I am I am a loud, powerful woman, and I, I really want to connect with people who think that's exciting. There, there's something for me, as a fan of music in general, in terms of all genres, that touches me in a much different way, and that's the female voice. There are great male voices out there. I'm just going to mention a few names who I think are also um, Lady Beasts in terms of music. Oh, do I love it. Um, Odetta. Oh, my gosh, yes. Linda Ronstadt, I tragically can't sing anymore. Lizzo, I heard, first time I heard her was on a podcast, Lizzo. Also, um, Katie Lang, the end of this podcast has Hallelujah. Her version of Hallelujah, the live concert, is the most amazing version I have ever heard celebrating Leonard Cohen, his song. And I'm also wow. just going to mention a few others. Uh, I think she's one of the greatest singers of all time, Barbara Streisand, mm-hmm. Etta James for me. And also, if you're a fan of the history of music, somebody called Sippy Wallace, going back to the old days of, of the blues. Oh, wow. So that, for me, is what resonates with me. But there's something about um, just the female voice. And they're very powerful and very evocative voices in the male genre and across all spectrums of music. But I wonder if in your head... What resonates with you? And does that female voice touch you in a certain way? Because I'm, I'm I guess you've been involved with a lot of men and women in terms of the music industry. So what kind of stays with you? You know, I think what stays with me the most is actually songwriting. When I hear a great song, and maybe it's because I'm a singer, um, and I'm also obviously a songwriter. When I hear a great song, I'm like, I want to sing that song. Right. And I might not do it the way the, the person originally sang it. You know what I mean? Um, but it stays with me. If I walk away and the song just makes me feel something, you know, it just puts a name to the exact thing that I've been through before. Um, that stays with me and that means a lot. And that's like what made me become a songwriter. 
And sometimes um, that means, like, sometimes I think to serve the song, well, I don't want to perform it the way the, <laughs> the, way right, the original right, person did. Right. You know what I mean? I'm all about serving the song and bringing something new and special to it. Um, but I do, I will say, like, I think female voices are both celebrated and underrepresented in the music industry. Right. You know what I mean? And um, I love the list you have. I love how I love how varied it is. Like, I love how you've got people from just every corner. Um I just, I don't know. I think that's wonderful. Maybe it goes back to hearing your mother's voice in the womb or being a mama's oh, boy. Yeah, and I hope sure. I wasn't a mama's boy, but there's something that's <laughs> going on there. Um, I want another song because we're doing this almost as a live concert, which um, I greatly appreciate that because we didn't rehearse anything. So I want to talk about the inspiration behind, this is an interesting title, the inspiration behind Full Moon. Oh, Full Moon Charm Bracelet. Um, thank you. Uh, so I will tell you, I am a spiritual person and I follow the moon, the moon cycles. I, I didn't grow up spiritual. I kind of like came to it late in my twenties and following the moon cycles was the first kind of thing I did. Um, and full moons, uh, are traditionally a time to identify what you're ready to let go. And that's because the moon's about to start waning. So as the moon gets smaller, you like kind of declutter your life, right, you know, right. um, and so I remember having like a full moon and I was like, I know what I, I, I know what isn't working, but I don't know how to let it go. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what this song is about. It was about me saying, let me, let me figure out how to let go. I don't actually know how. I'm not good at it. I'm just trying my best. So that's what songwriting is for me. It's like a journal. I'm like real time. I bet you've had this struggle too. Here's mine. <laughs> makes you, makes you relatable. I hope so. <laughs> well, this is called Full Moon Charm Bracelet. And 
Periscope. We're blessed to have Rory Kelly in studio. Um, I think this is an odd way to get to this point. I think of a tennis player. The racket is an extension of his body. <laughs> in a sense, the soccer player, when the ball's at his foot, the ball is an extension of his body. To what degree is your guitar an extension of your body? A uh, larger and larger degree as I go by. It's a really good metaphor. And, oh, gosh, you don't want to see me try to play tennis. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking how I used to play tennis with um, someone I used to be dating. And um, I was terrible at tennis, and which was very frustrating for her. And for me, um, I just thought it was hilarious, <laughs> which was also very frustrating. frustrating. For her. Right. I thought my in- incompetence was very funny. <laughs> but, yeah, my guitar, I think, is... Uh, you know, my guitar, my my looper now, which I've been working with for a few years, it, it really is just like it's a it's a piece of me. Like my toolbox keeps getting bigger as I perform more and more, which is a blessing. It's wonderful. Do you remember the first time you picked the guitar up? How old were you? When did you first think about music is going to be an important part of my life? We see all these kids are picking it up at five and six years old and and all of a sudden, it's just they do and do and do, and other people won't start till later in life. So when did your journey start in terms of bringing you here today? Well, um, 
I remember my mom teaching me how to tune a guitar when I was young, before I started really playing. Uh, I think I was eight or nine, maybe. Um, and I remember it didn't really take, and I was like, okay, I did I did remember how to tune it, but I never learned how to play. Um, and then when I was 13, or the summer I turned 13, so I might have been 12, I, um, I was up really late. I was listening to Sean Colvin's Sunny Came Home came okay, on. Okay, wow. Um, and I was... Uh, It just took me to a special place. You know how music can do that sometimes, especially when it's, you know, in the wee hours of the morning. (laughs) My brain was a little ready for it. And I was just like, this is is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And um, I grew up in a family of musicians, so I was lucky to have access to instruments. And I just took this old beat-up guitar that my dad had bought for me and my sister years ago and hit it behind a chair and taught myself because it needed to be personal for me. It needed it needed to be me, not directed by one of my parents. Um, and I hit it for six weeks until I could play a song. <laughs> and then I was like, "Hey guys, I play guitar now." <laughs> so what age were you? Um, I was uh, I was twelve, and but and when I let everyone know I could play guitar, I was thirteen. So in terms of your family, what was the music like in your house? What were you being constantly, I don't want to say bombarded with, (laughs) but certainly it seems to be part of the ethos in your family. So what were you listening to? And subliminally, what was influencing you? Well, my dad um, grew up uh, on the Beatles and the Beatles like really influenced his career. He was in a Beatles duo for a a long time um, on the side of his studio work. So Beatles were a big part of my life. He also, um, when I was younger, used to play uh, the Rembrandts a lot in the car. That's something I remember, uh, one of their first albums. And um, my mom used to listen to Annie Lennox, Bonnie Raitt, Brenda Russell, like when she was, you know, doing things around the house, making dinner, whatever, um, it like talk about lady beasts, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So just those real beautiful, powerful voices combined with this real great sense of like uh, harmony. I'll tell you a great story. When I first became aware of Bonnie Raitt, it was up in, up in Tanglewood, outdoor venue. And Mose Allison was one of the acts opening up for Bonnie Raitt. And then that's the first time I heard her mention Sippy Wallace. Oh, wow. So those are the connections, Sippy Wallace to, to Bonnie Raitt. And wow. Bonnie Raitt, you know who her father was, big Broadway singer, John Raitt. Oh, I didn't know that, that. That was her father. That's where the music comes from. It comes from her father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the great shows he did on Broadway, he had a great voice. But Bonnie could sing, but also Bonnie understood the roots of the blues and playing the guitar. Oh, yeah. Bonnie is such a player. Oh, my God. Yeah. People focus on her voice. I think people do that with women a little bit. She's a she's a beast. She is a beast. Yeah. She is a beast. So I'm really intrigued with the next song. I think on this list that we were kind of talking about, and you can change things around because I have, I'm very comfortable with that the last minute on the fly. Uh, this girl. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and thank you for letting me change things around. I'm actually, I'm, it's nice to have things pre-planned for once. I'm not usually someone who does. Uh, so this song is called This Girl. It's funny. I wrote it in the beginning of 2020 before we knew what 2020 was going to be. And I was having a bad week. <laughs> it was like just one week. <laughs> I was having a bad. It was it was like January, and like you know, a couple of gigs had canceled on me. The winter is always a slow time. I was a little worried about money, um, and I was writing. Um, I was on my way to a gig, um, a friend's gig that I was going to play at a little bit, and I kind of wrote this song in the car and was like, "I just wrote a song, guys. I'm going to perform it for you right now," and it was about. Um, Really just showing up and and pushing and pushing, even when the life was giving you lemons, so to speak. Right. And, you know, little did I know, I wrote that in the beginning of 2020, <laughs> little did I know how many lemons we would get. <laughs>
Sorry, but the schedule's full right now. Sorry, but we found somebody else. Sorry, but we can't afford to pay you tonight. Sorry, I had to cancel. I hope it's alright. I'm so far from alright. I come out the other side. This girl won't back down, won't back down. This girl won't back down. This girl won't back down, won't back down. This girl won't back down. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry if it really went down like that. I had no idea. I guess it must have been three. For you, I guess you're okay now. I guess I gotta suck it up and press on. I guess I'll be alright. I guess the nightmares will remind me that I got to the other side. Cause I can't live inside the past. The time just goes so fast. And this won't back down, won't back down. This girl won't back down. Oh, this girl won't back down, won't back down. This girl won't back down. Oh, oh, oh. I learned you get punished for sticking out. I learned to be strong and never shut my mouth. I learned the resistance is fuel. I won't let you make me a fool. I use the resistance as fuel. 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 This girl won't back down. Won't back down. 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 This girl won't back down. I use the resistance Can I ask you, that song, This Girl, is it almost like your personal anthem? A little bit. It definitely became a little that. bit or a lot more. Maybe a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I have a penchant for writing personal anthems, though. So All right. it's so not you, the only one. So you got an album of personal anthems. I do. It's called Shadow Work. It came out um, just uh, just this spring. We finished it in 2020. Like, what else were we doing? <laughs> right. Good point. So I'm a big fan of podcasts. I listen to WTF with Mark Maron. He's really, really good. Um, he understands the world of comedy, understands the world of music, and he's been doing it for a long, long time. Nice. So I'm listening to him with Steve Miller from the Steve Miller Band. Uh-huh. And, and what came out of that was the, the question about live performing versus studio recording, which in a sense is more creative 
not just for Steve Miller, because he's also produced a lot. Mm-hmm. And after a while, he got tired with the record label, he said, because they wanted their producer for his music. And he said, no, I'm going to produce my own music. And, mm-hmm. and he was much happier doing that way. So in terms of the comparison between live performing and the energy and being in the studio, what is that like for you? You know, I think they're very intertwined. I love, um, I perform live every second. Uh, I, I, you know, I play out more nights than I don't during the week. Um, and that's a really special thing. And when I write a new song, I usually have to play it for a few weeks before I know exactly what shape I want it to take. Um, and then going into the studio and knowing that, having the space, having like kind of that meditative space to be able to not have to be putting on a show right now, but just sit and and ask what I want to do for this art. Um, that means the world to me. And I also, I don't know if I mentioned this, I record with my dad. My dad and I are, are recording partners. And uh, he's amazing. He's a, an amazing world-class producer, a ridiculous bass player, a great keys player, and um, also has the art of knowing how to listen. <laughs> yeah, that, but that's the secret, learning how to li- Even it, in it this is. business, rather yes. than making yourself in center, if you learn how to listen, you will learn a lot. It's so true. Um, and so it's like, it's this blessing to get to record with him. It's this blessing to get to have that kind of sacred collaboration of my ideas and his ideas and what comes out of our two very different, you know, musical spheres. Um, that's to me, like I said, it's, it's a sacred practice. It's like, we're showing up for art and we are worshiping at the altar of art. Sorry. I I don't know. I didn't mean to get so deep. (laughs) That's all right. You can go a lot deeper with me. I really appreciate that because I'm not that deep. So anybody goes beyond, (laughs) beyond me is more than welcome. So before we say goodbye, I'm going to talk about something you have called midnight muses. It's, uh, it's Monday night muses. Okay. Monday um, night muses. Yeah. So every Monday night, um, we started this during quarantine. It was originally my cousin, Delia Stanley and I, she's also a musician. She's the same age. So we used to gig together. Uh, she now lives down in North Carolina during 2020. She was like, let's just start a streaming show. And we did every Monday night we would go live. One of us would play for an hour. The other one would follow up. Um, she got back to work sooner than I did because they opened up sooner down there. And uh, I was like, I'm going to keep doing this. I really love it. Do you mind if I use Monday Night Muses? And she was like, no, go for it. So uh, it turned into I have a new opener every every week, someone who uh, usually a songwriter um, because my, my folks love songwriters, I find. And then I play for an hour. I share songs. I share stories. I, I read a little bit of poetry. And it's just turned into this really cool, weird celebration of like art and vulnerability. And we've got this great community who comes week after week. Um, so it's Monday nights. It's 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv backslash Rory Kelly. That's where you can find it. I'm Larry Davidson. I want to thank both all three of my guests. Uh, John Copenhaver wrote the book called The Savage Kind. Uh, Rory Vesey came in with some really astute questions for the writer and the singer-songwriter Rory Kelly. Can you kind of play us out? I would love to play you out. Oh, thank you. (laughs) This is a song called Liminal Spaces. I wrote this during 2020, wondering what the new normal is going to be like. I have a thing for liminal spaces. I get stuck inside them for ages. When you observe a particle, the particle changes But no one's understanding when I change too, if you're looking I had a book of dreams on my nightstand I always thought that I'd come back for it 
could make rent I had to prove I could do it my way If you just believed me the first time It wouldn't have been so hard for me Where are the moon sisters I was promised? Where is the music monk I never got to be? From the things I am drawn to I try to learn why the moth inside me Likes this particular flame So I don't get burned again I have a notebook So many it's embarrassing I have a lot to say for someone So quiet people think that she's a stuck-up bitch Until they get to know me And by the time they get to know me I'm attached even if it's wrong Where is the night of cups I was promised? I went all in, and all I got was this lousy discernment. Cause I got stuck chasing love from somebody. Cause I got stuck trying to chase money. It's too late now. You can never take it back. It's too late now. Forget the years back It's too late now And the future looks exhausting Where are the broken But good-hearted people I feel myself Changing into something I don't like Cause I got stuck Chasing love from somebody Cause I got stuck Trying to chase Stuck inside them for ages When you observe a particle The particle changes I can barely understand the particle that I've become The Artful Periscope Podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. 
You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.